Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to continue our look at Romans chapter 12. In the last episode, we looked at verses 1 and 2, where Paul discusses being living sacrifices to God. And in this episode, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8, where Paul describes and tells us how to serve God with the spiritual gifts that we're given. So when we become Christians, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, one of the effects, the spiritual effects that has in our lives is he comes and fills us with his Holy Spirit. It's a um, miraculous thing that happens. And when that happens, part of the effect is that we are given spiritual gifts, which is what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at exactly how we let those gifts play out and function in our life. Um, every, <clears throat> excuse me. Everybody has different gifts. Everybody has different um, callings in life. But for the most part, the, um, the gifts that we can always have are the gifts that are described um, mainly throughout Romans, throughout 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, but... The most important gift is love, and that's a gift that we are to always, um, I guess, uh, exhibit towards others, no matter what, in any situation. Now, love encompasses different types of things, and, you know, there's different types of love, if you will. There's romantic love, there's uh, familial type of love, there is... um, you know, uh, love where you teach and, uh, you know, um, sometimes it can be called tough love where you, you know, bring somebody up and raise them up. Um, but there's different ways that love can be displayed. But one main theme with all love is that love is not only a word or words, it is also action. So when we say, for example, if you tell somebody you love them, That's good to say it, but to show love is much more important than to just say it. So, again, love is followed by action, and that's something that we all have different times in our life that we learn that. Um, Sometimes we are very familiar with that from an early part of life because we have good parents that know how to show their love to us or other family members, grandparents, things like that. Or um, sometimes we learn it later on in life when we mature, grow, have different relationships, and we learn exactly what love is and what what all that entails. But like I said, today we're going to focus on Romans 12 verses 3 through 8, where Paul describes how to serve God with our spiritual gifts. So without any further ado, let's take a look at Romans 12, 3 to 8. Okay, and like I said, we're going to look in Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. What we'll do is read through those verses, look at the notes in my Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Bible, and then we will go from there. We're going to jump around. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians, Mark, a lot of New Testament. So it's going to be fun. It's what I love to do. So here we go. All right. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For I say... Through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, 
as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So let's look at the notes for that section and then we'll go from there. Paul calls for lives marked by humility and faithfulness in Christian relationships. Just as a physical body is made up of many members, each with a different function, the church is a body of many members, but all closely related and constituting a unity in Christ with each one having individual functions and responsibilities. We are not to inflate our own position nor to begrudge others their office. Paul refers to his own function in the body as an authoritative apostle through the grace given to him. The measure of faith is not saving faith, but the faith to receive and to exercise the gifts God apportions to us. The measure of faith he gives corresponds to the role he assigns as creator and redeemer. Our different gifts and abilities should make us love and depend more on one another and therefore should make us more united as one body in Christ. There are basically two interpretive approaches to this passage on gifts. One, to see them as a category distinct from that of other New Testament passages often referred to as the Father's creational gifts. See note, or excuse me, okay. Or two, to see them as a repeat or overlap of many of those mentioned. In either 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 29, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Prophecy refers either to those who, excuse me, whose creation gift from the Father enables them to view all of life with special ongoing prophetic insight, independent of public office, or special use by the Spirit in giving public prophecy, or to the manifestation of public prophecy, speaking something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. In proportion to our faith likely means that prophecy of any sort is to be exercised in accordance with the biblical maturity God has, God has granted the speaker, recognizing that God is the originator of the gift. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the note here for Romans 12, verses 7 and 8. Ministry suggests either those whose special creation gift enables them to most effectively serve the body in physical ways or the rendering of any type of service by anyone in the church. Teaching refers either to those who are specially gifted to keep an eye on and instruct the revealed truth of God's word, regardless of public office, or to those in the public office of teacher. He who exhorts describes either those whose creation gift enables them to best apply God's truths through encouragement, or to those, such as pastors, 
who are called to publicly bring encouragement to the church. He who gives, which does not occur in the 1 Corinthians or Ephesians listings, refers either to those gifted to contribute to the emotional and or physical support of others, or to those gifted with abundant financial means, so as to support the work of the gospel. He who leads refers either to those who are gifted to effectively facilitate all areas of life or to those with the public function of administration or possibly even to a deacon. He who shows mercy defines either those with a spiritual gift of strong perceptive emotions or those called to special functions of Christian relief and acts of charity with cheerfulness warns those with this gift not to allow depression or moroseness to overtake them. That word cheerfulness there is the word hilaritotes, which means compare, hilarious, or hilarity, graciousness, joyfulness, gladness, benevolence, um, amicability, cheerfulness, gaiety, affability. In primitive lands, Bible translators defined hilarotes as the heart is laughing and the eyes are dancing. The word was often used for the cheerful demeanor of those visiting the sick and infirm and of those giving alms. The person who exhibits hilarotes is a sunbeam lighting up a sick room with warmth and love. Great definition there of cheerfulness. Definitely seems like a very pretty modern application as well. When you think of someone who's cheerful and happy, then that's pretty much a great definition. I love that last line there where it says, the person who exhibits hilarotes is a sunbeam lighting up a sick room with warmth and love. We all know people like that. You know, there's just certain people that have a gift of warmth, of love, of cheerfulness that just really surpasses most. And um, those people are special and it is a gift from God. It's pretty incredible. Let's look at the um, Kingdom Dynamics section here for Romans 12 verses 3 to 5. This is, again, just sections in my Bible that kind of uh, spiritual, like New King James Version Bible, that kind of just break down just the idea and theme of what's being discussed in this uh, specific passage and in these verses in particular. Again, Romans 12, verses 3 through 5, this is called, One should not think too highly of himself, human worth. Because the Bible teaches that human beings are made in God's image, we are to respect the position of each individual under God. This text does not teach that believers should think of themselves as worthless or insignificant beings, but rather that none should consider himself to be more worthy, more important, more deserving of salvation, or more essential than anyone else. Possession of different talents or gifts does not denote differences in worth, for all belong to the one body, to one another, and all are interdependent. To think otherwise is to distort reality. Each individual has intrinsic value and worth, as we are all equal before God and in Christ. Amen. So 
a lot of wisdom there, a lot of godly just, um, you know, explanation as far as, uh, you know, especially this is a pretty common idea and theme that's discussed here in verse four, where Paul says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So again, I mean, you have a foot, you have a hand, you have um, a leg, a head, all different purposes, but when combined, they make one body and one individual to function as a whole person. And that's exactly the image that Paul's painting here with the idea of, again, having a um, body of Christ and Christ basically um, doling out different gifts within the body, again, for the body. So to think like anything else in life, like anything we're blessed with, to think that we're special because God blesses us a certain way. It's just fooling ourselves. And it's a, like the note says, it's a distortion of reality because there are, God has no favorites. Um, we need to remain meek, humble, and contrite. And again, realize that everything we have comes from the Lord to begin with. So if you, if you have that reality and you're rooted and grounded in that, then how could we ever think that anything we do in particular is um of our own effort or that we deserve any type of praise or recognition for frankly anything that we do for the lord because again god lights our path and the holy spirit fills us and you know shows us his ways and how to do things in his way so um you know i could see how people who prophesy could um you know Think of that as a very special talent, but at the same time, it's the Holy Spirit working through them, and that's it, really. And it's uh, that's why you have to remain humble, keep things in perspective, and understand that at the end of the day, it's God working through us, no matter what it is. So it's pretty incredible stuff. All right, so let's flip up. We're going to look at Second Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 12, verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities than the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So looking at that word grace, it's charis. It means from the same root as chara, joy, and charo, to rejoice. Charis causes rejoicing. It is the word for God's grace as extended to sinful men. It signifies unmerited favor, undeserved blessing, a free gift. Amen. So again, simply saying there, Paul, he's describing, he's talking about the thorn in his flesh. And he's saying he would rather boast in Christ alone that the power of Christ may rest upon him. Simply put. He realizes that everything that happens in his life and all the amazing purposes that God uses him for are simply uh, God using him. You know, they're byproducts of the work of the Holy Spirit. So he would never boast necessarily and um, boast in his own uh, knowledge. Um, He's a wise Paul was a very wise apostle, obviously, and he was someone who really understood 
his position in the kingdom of God while he was here on earth. And um, I think he was deeply moved, motivated, and touched when he was saved by the Lord and uh, knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and used by God to basically evangelized throughout the new world and the known world at the time, because he, um, he really stayed firm and grounded in who he was. And it's verses like that where he says, after all he had been, you know, through and all of his accomplishments, if you will, he still says, no matter what, no matter what in life comes at me, I will always boast in Christ alone. So, um, all right, let's flip up. Let's flip back. Actually, we're going to look at Mark chapter five, verse 15 next, where it says, then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid that word right mind there is so It means to be of sound mind, sane, self-controlled. Serious, moderate, sober-minded, restrained, disciplined, able to reason. From sozo, to save, and friend, the mind. The word describes our behavior and attitude as we approach the ending of the age. Um, And then the note here says, Why Jesus allowed the demons to enter the swine is uncertain. Perhaps he was teaching an object lesson to the people of the region, who obviously were more concerned with the loss of property than rejoicing over the deliverance of their countrymen. Clearly, Jesus valued people more than property. So I look at that verse again because we are called to be sober-minded, and Jesus is the one who sets us in that sober mindset. And it's important to recognize the importance of remaining sober-minded because, you know, when we uh, step out and we are, you know, not of a sound mind, we are very susceptible to sin. We are susceptible to falling into things that we normally wouldn't fall into if we weren't under the influence of whatever it may be. So very important, again, be vigilant and be very... um, you know, pay attention to detail when it comes to living life because every little thing we do, every choice we make matters and can really set our life on different courses depending on sometimes micro decisions and sometimes macro decisions. But you got to, um, you know, make make your decisions wisely is what I would say. So we're going to flip up to First Peter. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 7 next where it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in all your prayers. The note here says, Since the end of the present order, with the return of Christ, is ever approaching, Christians are to be watchful. So again, going right into the idea and theme of remaining sober-minded, avoiding sin, you know, um, we are to be expectant of the Lord to return at any moment. So obviously it kind of goes without saying, but it's a point that's made a lot. You don't want to be in the middle of a shameful act or sin or drunk or high or whatever it may be when 
you're expecting a Lord to come back. Those two concepts are completely contrary and conflicting with each other. So um, God will set you free of whatever has to you have to be set free from, but you need to want to be set free of it. That's an important detail and an important um, reality. And again, that comes along with shifting your perspective, comes along with um, basically letting the Lord show you exactly why you shouldn't do or should do certain things. And it's our change in mindset. It's, it's our shift in perspective that truly helps us grasp the reality of our actions and why we should or shouldn't do things. So let's look next. We're going to flip back to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17, where it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles or Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would we be hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? So Paul, you know, in a genius way, is kind of breaking it down there. Let's look at the notes for that section. Then we'll look at the kingdom dynamic for that section. So the note here for 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse... We'll look at the... Notes for, let's look at the note for verse 13. Paul states the basis for the principle of unity within diversity. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the common life of Christians and a greater dynamic than all human distinctives. The Greek grammar in this statement parallels other passages that speak of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. While spirit baptism describes a primary spiritual reality for all believers, Paul still pleads for a spirit-filled experience that includes the manifestations listed here. So, let's look at the Kingdom Dynamics section here for this, uh, in particular, uh, uh, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It's subtitled here, All Believers Are Members of the Body of Christ. The human body is an exquisite organism. Scientists cannot duplicate it or even fully understand it. It is a synthesis of many parts all working together in a comprehensive whole. What affects one part of the body affects the whole. Each member of the body relates to and depends upon other parts of the body. Each contributes to the welfare of the entire body. So are all believers as members of the body of Christ. We should function in Christ's body as the parts of the human body function in it. The amputation of a limb handicaps the entire body. There is no Christian brother whom we do not need. The word body in Greek 
soma, is related to sozo, meaning to heal, preserve, be made whole. This clearly shows how our lives are inextricably woven together within the body of Christ and how well-being depends upon the well-being of others. Let us allow Christ to knit us together in his church. Amen. So next we're going to flip up to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 26 through 29. And um, let's see, chapter 3. Boom, here we are. So my spirit full life, New King James Version Bible subtitles this section, Sons and Heirs. And it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have not put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So let's look at the notes for that section and then we will move on. In Christ, distinctions of race, rank, and sex neither hinder fellowship nor grant special privileges. Baptism itself does not secure our union with Christ. It portrays outwardly and visibly the union secured by faith inwardly. All right, so we're going to flip up next actually to the truth and action section at the end of Galatians. We're going to look at Truth in Action, Section 1, where it says, Godliness results from Jesus Christ living through you by the Holy Spirit. It is not achieved by observing some external code. Any attempt to achieve righteousness through a list of external do's and don'ts is fruitless. God calls us to love others and serve others just as Jesus did. By the power of the same Holy Spirit, and in the same gracious freedom. And then the note here, this is the truth and action section again at the end of Galatians in my spirit filled life, New King James Version Bible just gives you the truth, that being, you know, what was the theme of specific sections of the book. And then the action describes how to put that specific truth into action in your life. So this for that, again, for that uh, little passage we read in Galatians 3 verses 26 to 29 says, think as if you have put on the life of Jesus Christ like clothing. Let Christ live freely through you. Amen. So again, the theme is very common throughout everything we're looking at. It's all about Jesus living through us. It's nothing we do. You know, anything that we're blessed with, any gifts, any any gifts, anything financial, anything, again, gifts of prophecy, gifts of um, healing, you know, um, gifts of teaching. We are to use those gifts to edify others and to teach the body. That's why I do this podcast, because I really enjoy the word of God. I really enjoy studying the word. I have a great study Bible. I have a good foundation. I have a great church I go to with a pastor who's full 
of incredible knowledge when it comes to the word, very well versed and studied that I've learned so much from. And, um, you know, when it comes down to it, I feel like I have a bit of a gift to teach and I take time to do this because it has a lot of great effects in my life across the board. And, um, you know, I fully recognize and realize that any gift I may have is nothing of me. It's just the goodness of God who gives me the passion and the hunger to get into his word and to really understand his word. And then when I have understanding, I like to share it with others because he does show me things and he does give me deeper revelation sometimes. But again, it'd be foolish for me to think that I'm anything special because of that. It's to be shared. It's to edify the body. And that's why, again, I felt compelled to originally start doing this um, podcast and will continue to do it until I feel no longer compelled to do it. But at this point, I enjoy it. I love it. And I'll continue to do it. So we're going to flip up next to Acts. We're going to be in um, Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 27 to 30. My Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible subtitles this section, Relief to Judah. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So let's look at the notes for that section, and then we will look at the kingdom dynamics for this section, because it's pretty pretty good stuff. It, it really explains the office of the prophet, is what it's called. And again, you have Agabus, who has a lot of faith to stand up and say there's going to be a famine. we got to help our people in um, in Judea. And sure enough, they do, and they probably save many lives by doing that. But again, he had the faith to hear from the Holy Spirit and take note. It wasn't something he kept inside. It was something that he shared. He edified the church. He motivated them and gave them instruction on what to do. And ultimately, they were able to provide and supply a body of believers because there was a famine in the land. All right. The note for Acts chapter 11, verse 28 says, Apparently, predictive prophecy about specific future events was the exclusive ministry of the prophet. While in 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul encouraged everyone to prophesy for the general edification or encouragement of the church. The scriptures then seem to distinguish between the gift of prophecy and the office of the prophet. Claudius Caesar was the Roman emperor in AD 41 to 54. The Jewish historian Josephus records a famine that occurred in Judea in AD 46. So, you know, people that, you know, the, the validity of the Bible debate is, is just a joke because most of the people that want to partake in it that don't believe in the Bible are very clueless as to what the Bible actually says. They just, you know, 
pull out a bunch of random verses and try to form an argument. Just like a lot of false preachers and teachers pull out random verses and base their whole theology on that. So it's an incredible thing, the, the truth of God, how powerful it is. And um, when it comes down to it, this famine happened. This famine was, um, again, prophesied of, and they responded to the prophecy by providing the people in the land that were going to be affected by it with supplies and food so that they did not essentially die. So let's take a look at the Kingdom Dynamics section for that section. Again, we are in... Acts chapter 11, we're looking at verses 27 through 30. My Spirit Filled Life, New King James Version Bible subtitles this, The Office of the Prophet. Prophecy. Agabus is an example of the office of the prophet in the New Testament. This role differs from the operation of the gift of prophecy in the life of the believer, for it entails a Christ-appointed ministry of a person, rather than the Holy Spirit distributing, excuse me, rather than the Holy Spirit distributed gift through a person. In the New Testament, this office was not sensationalized as it tends to be today. Such an attitude is unworthy, both in the prophet and in those to whom he ministers, and is certain to result in an unfruitful end. Quickly, I mean, this is total Western garbage when it comes down to it. You know, any man claiming, again, this these are gifts from God, the audacity the absolute just um, heresy to sit and claim that you're anything special because you have a gift from God. And most of these people that have these gifts end up falling into sinful lifestyles and being exposed for the um, false believers that they are. Um, a few big names come to mind back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, but even up till today, though, you know. Um, you just, anytime, God will not be mocked, okay? And um, he will not allow people to take credit for his work. He is, um, he's the I am. He is, he is the creator of all. And he, he will deal with things in his time and in his way. And he does. Um, and believe me when I say, it's better for him to deal with it now on earth. So hopefully those people repent and are truly cleansed of their sin before they pass on to the next life instead of dying in their sin and then having to face the judgment for basically taking credit for God's work. You don't want to be in that, uh, you don't want to be in that category at all. And again, that's why we're called to be meek, humble, have a contrite spirit. It's very important, very important, because most of those people start that way, but then they get a little, you know, they get a little big head on their shoulders because God's using them. And before they know it, they are there. It's a very slippery slope, pride, ego, all those things. They, they, um, it doesn't take much for you to all of a sudden start thinking you're something special. We must remain grounded. We must understand that we are instruments of God. We are tools of God to be used by God alone. And um, just don't ever uh, 
if you're blessed with these gifts, that's great. Use them, edify, share them, but don't ever think you're anything special because we know that without the Lord, we're all a bunch of lost people. So keep that in mind as we, you know, as God uses us and gives us measures of faith to, again, don't abuse the Lord. Don't abuse what he gives us. Just be thankful, grateful, and stay rooted in the word. Like I always say, stay rooted in God. Stay rooted in who he is. And the way you do that, one major component to doing that is staying in his word. To know him, know his expectations, and to know exactly what he wants us to do and not to do. So. All right, picking up with the Kingdom Dynamics section here for, again, Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Apparently, Paul was addressing such assumption of the prophetic office when he issued the challenge of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, calling for submission to spiritual authority rather than self-serving independence. The office of prophet cannot be taken lightly. There is nothing in the New Testament that reduces the stringent requirements for serving this role. And Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 20 to 22 ought to be regarded seriously. Prophecy is nothing to be experimented with for souls are in the balance in the exercise of every ministry. Further wisdom may be gained by noting that on biblical terms, there is more than one type of ministry by a prophet. While a few exercise remarkable predictive gifts, Daniel, Zechariah, and John, other traits of the prophetic office are seen. One, preaching, especially at a national or international level, John the Baptist. Two, teaching, especially when unusual insight is present and broad impact made in serving God's people, Ezra. Three, miracles, as remarkable signs to accompany a prophet's preaching, Elijah. Four, renewal, as with Samuel. See 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 4, verse 1. Or that called for by the psalmist and by Amos. See Psalms 79, or excuse me, 74, chapter 9, or chapter 74, verse 9, there we go. And Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The incident of Agabus resulted in effective action by the churches rising to meet a challenging situation. This is a valid test of the prophetic office. It is for edification and not for entertainment, to enlarge and refresh the body, whether locally or beyond. Amen. Praise the Lord. And um, next we are going to actually flip up to Ephesians we're going to go with Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 11 there. Again, this is all tying back to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And this particular verse in Ephesians ties into Romans 12, verse 7. So, again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So, again, this is just talking about the Lord and the gifts. And um, there's, you know, uh, 
again, these are all gifts given by the Lord. So it's, I know I keep kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but you can't take any credit for it because it's, it's not yours to begin with that you're nothing special. We're nothing special. God is good. He loves us. He uses us to speak through us. Look, when it comes down to it, it's a mystery to me why God chooses us to be his messengers of anything, given how flawed we all are. But that's the mystery of God. And it really shows his love for us. It really shows that he sees what we don't see. He loves us. I was just talking to my beautiful girlfriend yesterday about how God, he is the good, good father. And he forgives us and loves us unconditionally. And it's amazing. But I guess the closest way we can understand it is just by saying that the the Lord looks at us in ways that parents see their own children. We all have our own unique views of our own children. Sometimes they can just do no wrong, quote unquote. And uh, no matter what they do, um, you know, and it's a. It's a unconditional love, and that's exactly how God looks at us, and um, he's not always pleased with us, just like we're not always pleased with our children, but he forgives us all the time. Uh, again, just saying those words kind of leaves me in a bit of a dumbfounded state, considering when I look back at my life, and when I look at around at other people around us, but... Who am I to judge? Who am I to even, including judge myself? You know, sometimes we're our harshest critics. And um, we really need to be more self-forgiving sometimes because we can really beat ourselves up. But remember this, temptation is only temptation. It's when you act on that temptation and fall into sin is when you're wrong. But You can't do anything about trials and tribulations and temptation. But what you can do is resist the devil and he will flee. It's that simple. So just a quick analogy there. I was out fishing with my children a couple weeks ago. Temptation is just like the hook in the water. We're all fish swimming around. And you better believe the little sunnies out there, they think they're slick. You leave that worm hanging too far off that hook, they're going to come up and snatch that worm right off the hook. But guess what? Every once in a while, they get hooked and they get pulled in by my little nine-year-old beautiful daughter who's 10 today on the good old uh, July 6, 2022. <laughs> she pulled in three sunnies. So cute, so adorable. But I'll tell you what, there were plenty of those fish that, um, you know, a little trial and error. I had to get those worms nice and tight on that hook, and then we started really catching them. But don't take the bait. Don't even flirt with the bait. Don't go taking nibbles off of the the bait hanging there. Because the minute you start entertaining that sin, it's only a matter of time before it hooks you and pulls you in. And you do not want to do that. We don't want to go through the same cycles in our lives. None of us do. So just shift your perspective, shift your your mindset, as Paul says in 
Romans 12, verse 2, you need to shift your perspective and how you think. And that is truly the way that you take step forward, steps forward to being set free and having the chains of sin broken in your life. So, all right. So we're looking at, again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Um, again, this is, and he, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So God gives us gifts, you know. Um, quickly looking at the kingdom dynamics section here. It kind of is brief, but we'll just look at it. It says the gifts Christ gives, spiritual gifts, distinguishing among the gifts of Romans 12, verses 6 through 8 from the Father, and gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 from the Holy Spirit, and those here, which are explicitly given by Christ the Son in verse 8, is pivotal in comprehending the whole scope of spiritual gifts. And there's actually a good section in my Spiritual Life, uh, New King James Version Bible here, that goes into the Holy Spirit gifts and power, but we're not going to look at that today necessarily because I think we'll uh, we'll touch on that at another time. But looking at the note here, gifts gave some. The five ministry offices listed here are gifts that Christ gave for the nurture and equipping of his church, not for her, her hierarchical control or existential competition, ecclesiastical, excuse me, hierarchical control and ecclesiastical competition. Takes me a couple times with these big words. What do you want me to say? I'm a Marine, so calm down. Beyond the distinct role filled by the original founding apostles, the New Testament mentions enough additional apostles to indicate that this office with that of prophets is as continuing a ministry in the church as the more commonly acknowledged offices of evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Some make pastor-teacher one office. There is no prescribed formula or gift mix for any particular office, as God uses different people in different ways in each of these five ministries Christ has given. Uniqueness is manifested in individuals according to the varied gifts God the Father has given them, and joined with whomever, with whatever gifts the Holy Spirit distributes to or through them. The distinct gifts of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit ought not to be confused, nor should any of the five ministry offices in this text be limited to the operation of any particular gift. So again, it's looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit, incredible stuff, um, and the gifts are there ultimately for the edification of the church, not for anyone to be puffed up, not for anyone to walk around, you know, gloating of what God, you know, has given them necessarily. I mean, the foolishness of that is just, you know, foolish, but people do it. People do it all the time. So... All right, what we're going to do, look at next here, we have a couple more verses to look at. And we're going to flip back, actually, to Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4.
And picking up again at Matthew chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 4. My Spirit for Life, New King James Version Bible subtitles this section, Do Good to Please God. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Amen. So looking at the notes for that section, it says, Jesus gives three specific examples of how practice of piety should be different from the hypocritical or external practices of the Pharisees. The general principle for Christians is that the motive in religious observances is to please God and not to gain praise from others. In contrast to hypocrites, Christians are not to call attention to their almsgiving. The reward of such play actors, hypocrites, is present and human, contrasted with the divine reward for unostentatious giving. So, again, I mean, pretty simple there, but that's Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 6, where he again says, you know, do basically... um, do your good deeds, do your works for the Lord in secret. Don't go around boasting, per se, about the things you've done. And plenty of people do that. Um, very religious people do that, as the scribes and Pharisees did, and that Jesus calls them the hypocrites. Because even, you know, they were religious people, but, I mean, they had no clue as to who God was. They just followed the law. They followed... um the, the the dead side of what was given by God, they, they followed that to the T to a certain degree. But ultimately, they were about putting on a show for others to try to make themselves look godly, if you will, so that they could get praise and recognition by other people, which, frankly, I mean, it it was a different culture back then, different times, but it's still, there's still plenty of people like that around today where you just, you know, you, um, you, you don't want to be in that, that play actor, hypocritical type of role because it does no one any good and it really harms yourself and anybody else who's, um, you know, who you may be trying to, well, I, I don't even think those people are trying to, you know, convert people necessarily because they're really just there for their own self-glorification. So, again, um, point is simple. Just do things for the Lord out of the goodness of your heart, and he will reward you in his time and in his ways. It's really that simple. So, we're going to finish up in Second Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 7. And this again is tying back to Romans chapter 12, verse 8. So again, we're going to finish up 2 Corinthians 
chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. The cheerful giver. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Looking at the notes for that section. Giving bountifully, literally with blessings, blesses both the recipients and those who give. Of necessity, under constraint, against one's will. So, again, the whole theme of the entire, I guess, um, portion of scripture that we started with in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, is exactly that. It's exactly about having a cheerful heart and doing everything from your heart to serve the Lord. Because ultimately, it's like the, um, it's like when Jesus taught about the scribe and the religious person who went into the temple and the sinner who went into the temple. The scribe, you know, basically prayed and said, I'm better than this man who's next to me. Don't ever let me be like him. And then the sinner was beating his chest and just repenting and crying and um, was truly, genuinely sorry for his sin. And Jesus said, the Lord heard the sinner and didn't hear the prideful man, essentially. So it's very important that we get our perspective and understanding as to who God is. God is not a pious, um, unreachable entity. He is our intimate, good, good father who loves us and cares about every detail of our life. So that said, we are going to conclude our look right now at Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And we are just moving along here. We have a couple more sections to look at. Actually, it looks like one more section. And then we're going to move on. I may get into Galatians next, but who knows? We'll see. So until then, God bless and have a great day.